0: You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Helm Report. Sir, there's Klingons on the starboard bow. Starboard bow? Starboard bow! What are they doing there? They seem to be waiting for the new episode of Earth Station Trek. Science, what do we know about this Earth Station Trek? It's a podcast that tracks through the history of Star Trek, from the early days on NBC to the future on Paramount Plus and everywhere in between. Navigation, how would one find such a podcast? By setting coordinates for earthstationtrek.com or by doing a sensor sweep of Spotify, iTunes, or any other quadrant where fine podcasts are available. Captain, what are we going to do about the Klingons? We come in peace, Commander. Weapon station, shoot to kill. Shoot Shoot to to kill. kill! Shoot to kill! Hey everybody, welcome to this week's episode of Monster Attack, the podcast dedicated to old monster movies. We've got an interesting one for you today. Now, many weeks ago, Mark Maddox and I talked about a film that dealt with a mistake that nearly caused the end of the world in a possible all-out nuclear exchange. That one was called Failsafe. Well, this is a film that some people call the uh, sister film to Failsafe, and we're going to tell you some interesting history about it. We touched on it a little bit during the Failsafe episode, but this one is a black comedy. Failsafe was a pure drama. This one, Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb, uh, ended up becoming a very, very wacky black comedy. In fact, this This film really, really affected me quite a bit growing up. I saw it for the first time in 1968 when it was broadcast October 11th on ABC TV as part of the Wednesday night movie. Now, if you're rushing to the internet to see if the dates match up, October 11th of 1968 was a Friday night, and uh, ABC would do that now and then. They would... They would take their Wednesday night movie of the weeks, uh, which had started out originally, I believe, on Tuesday nights, and switch them around. And if they needed to fill a couple of hours, uh, they would have a Wednesday night movie on all kinds of different nights. And that threw me a little bit because I I cross-referenced it myself because I knew I had seen this um, on a, uh, a television network, on one of the big television networks. And I couldn't remember if it was CBS Late Night, or one of the other networks. So I'm glad I checked. But ABC got the rights to the film, and uh, I will never forget that night. I just forgot what day of the week it was, but it was on nine to eleven. So that should have tipped me off that that was going to be, a, you know, probably a Friday or a Saturday night, uh, because I doubt my folks would have been too cool with me staying up that late on a uh, school night. So I mean, they were like, as I've said in the past, they were very liberal about. Uh, you know, me taking the little black and white TV up to my room and watching uh, monster movies and sci-fis at all hours of the night. But uh, during, school, during the school day week, uh, no, uh, not, not quite that liberal. So this film was broadcast on ABC TV, 9 to 11. It was part of the Wednesday night movie series, although uh, it was broadcast on Friday night. Uh, this was also the same day. Uh, just uh, let's really geek out science-wise on this one. That Apollo Seven had its mission. Now, uh, for many of you, you might not think. Well, I'm not sure why that's so appropriate. You know why that's so exciting. Apollo Seven, which was headed up by Wally Schirra, Wally Schirra was the uh, the commander of that mission, and it it simply uh, launched a Saturn One B rocket up into uh, orbit. And then they circled the planet for, uh, for quite a while to test out the new Apollo capsule. That was the first mission after the Apollo 1 fire in 1967. So that was also a big deal. So here we go, uh, you know, with all the stuff going on about Apollo 7 in the daytime. And then that night, I see this movie being advertised on ABC TV. And and I remember bits and pieces of the trailer, but it just it intrigued me so much. It's like I've got to see this movie. I've got to stay up and watch this. Uh, I thought I was getting into uh, you know a pure uh, drama like Fail Safe about uh, about a mistake that nearly caused the uh, the end of the world to a nuclear exchange. But I knew Stanley Kubrick. I had uh, I had loved his films for uh, quite a while. Uh, especially uh, Paths of Glory and and a couple of others that he did. So I, I was a fan. I was already a fan when I saw this movie. This movie really cemented that even further. Because I remember vividly watching this and when I realized that wow, this has got some humor to it. It's really got some humor to it. And I, I'd never seen a black comedy before. So if someone had Asked me, I I was 13 years old. I was about a month away from my 14th birthday. Somebody had asked me, you know, to explain what a black comedy was. I I wouldn't have been able to tell them. So it was also a night where I learned to love a new type of genre. Because later on, there would be a black comedy starring George C. Scott that would come out called The Hospital. And I'd become a big George C. Scott fan after this film. A lot of things happened after I saw this movie. We're going to get into all the details on it. Now, just in case you haven't seen Dr. Strangelove, I don't want to spoil it for you, so I'm going to warn you, I will be spoiling everything in this episode, talking about this movie in great detail because it's such a unique film. And it is still one of my all-time favorite Stanley Kubrick films. I can't just... I can't just pick one film that's a favorite of mine of Stanley's. But in a list of about three or four, this is in that list. Because I walked away from this movie knowing that I had seen something really different. And there were a few kids in my neighborhood, I remember, that that next day on Saturday, that had stayed up and watched it as well. And in all honesty, a lot of my friends didn't understand it. And there were bits and pieces of it I wasn't sure about. I couldn't wait to see it again. And of course, you know, as we've talked many times before, if you saw a movie on television, you might have to wait another year before you'd see it again, or at least six months when it would rerun. This one did get another broadcast in 1960, in early 1969, or I would say spring, uh, summer, whatever, when the reruns started coming back around. But I knew I'd seen something special. Now, Here's the cast we're dealing with. An amazing cast led by Peter Sellers. I'll jump back here in a minute. I'm going to introduce everybody first, and then I'm going to tell you about Peter Sellers. Peter Sellers plays three different characters in this movie. (laughs) And, of course, those of you that are Peter Sellers fans know that that's not an unusual thing for him. George C. Scott. Now, this is before Patton. So I'd only seen George C. Scott in, in some television uh, productions that he'd been involved with and whatever. I knew who he was, but I didn't know him well. I mean, I didn't know his work well. Still pretty young in this. He plays General Buck Turgeson, who's the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, character that was based on Curtis LeMay, General Curtis LeMay. And Sterling Hayden. Fascinating guy who'd been blacklisted by the House Un-Americans uh, Committee. He had actually admitted that he belonged to the Communist Party at one time. That took some guts. It took some real guts. But Sterling Hayden, when he wasn't on camera, you know, he he was everything. that You know, he was what he was. And he plays Brigadier General Jack D. Ripper. He's a commander of an Air Force base uh, known as... Burpleson Air Force Base, which was uh, part of SAC, Strategic uh, Air Command. Of course, Burpleson Air Force Base doesn't exist. Uh, But again, all of the names of things in here are going to be humorous in some way, with double entendres. General Jack D. Ripper is very paranoid, and we're going to talk about that in a moment when we get into the storyline. He's the one that sets everything into motion that causes all the problems. Keenan Wynn makes an appearance about halfway through the film and, and, and then throughout the, to the end as Colonel Bat Guano. <laughs> now, i got to be honest with you, folks. When I saw this movie for the first time, I didn't know what Guano was. <laughs> I, had to, I had to look it up, and then when I did, I, then it did you know that's, that's what this film did. It made me look things up because I knew I had seen something special and, and everything, every name... Every reference had two meanings to it. He's an officer who um, finds one of uh, Peter Sellers' characters at the uh, at the Air Force Base. And we'll tell you a little more about how Keenan Wynn and Colonel Bat Guano play a major role in this as, the, uh, as we get into the detailed storyline. Slim Pickens, who I had seen on and off on TV. You know, he'd been in about every TV Western known to man. Became a favorite of mine, a favorite character actor of mine, you know, with that Texas trawl of his. He always allowed the characters that he played in movies and on television to channel through him. It's one thing I liked about Slim Pickens because, you know, in my career, you know, I was always taught you didn't try to pretend to be somebody when you're acting. You let that character become you. And then it becomes more natural and more believable. And Slim Pickens did that with every character he did. He played Major T.J. King Kong, who's the commander and pilot of a B-52. <laughs> then there's Peter Bull. I did not know Peter Bull. Uh, I had probably seen him in some films and television work. He was an American American actor from Canada who plays the... Uh, Soviet ambassador, but he was in The African Queen, Doc, uh, Tom Jones. And then, of course, uh, this one, Dr. Strangelove. So he did some big movies. Ambassador Alexei D. Sadesky. <laughs> Sadesky is spelled like Marquis de Sade. <laughs> like I said, every name and reference in this, is, it makes allusions to something else. Now we've got one of the first appearances of James Earl Jones. In fact, this is his film debut. And he plays Lieutenant Luther Zog. He's the bombardier on the B 52 that Slim Pickens is the commander of. Then we have the very lovely Tracy Reed, who plays Miss Scott. She's General Turgeson's secretary, and also, we find out, his mistress. We found that out very quickly. She's the only female character you're going to see in this movie, the only one. And she is a sight. Oh. Easy on the eyes. We were all in love with her because she appears in this movie in, in basically in a bikini. She enteres and getting ready to play around a little bit. She also appeared as a Playboy Playmate in June 1962 issue. Of course, at this point I was a little young for Playboy, but uh, but I did find that out about her later on in life. <laughs> and as it turns out, as an inside joke, there's going to be seen in the movie. Where Major Kong, again Slim Pickens' character, when they're holding at their failsafe point, which is something that is explained in the film how our our defense system worked, these B fifty twos would go out, they were full, they'd be fully loaded with active nuclear weapons. They'd go out and hold at a fail safe point. It was sort of a point that if you crossed that line then that you were committing to war. So these B-52s would hold at that point, at some point. So there's sort of like an autopilot. Kong is reading an issue of Playboy magazine, and it's the June 1962 issue. So a lot of, a lot of inside jokes. But a great cast, even though some of these guys are you know, relatively new. Now, Columbia Pictures agreed to finance the film. And originally, Stanley Kubrick was going to make a serious film based on a book called Red Alert. Now, we talked about that book when we talked about Failsafe because Failsafe was based on a book called Failsafe but got into some legal trouble because the author of Red Alert, who helped write the screenplay for this film, filed suit against him, against Failsafe, not the movie but the book, for plagiarism because the, the story was so similar to the one that had been written In the book, Red Alert. And they won. They won. And part of what uh, they won in the settlement was that uh, Columbia would buy the rights. So Columbia now owned the rights to the book that Failsafe, the movie, was based on. Which means Columbia had a little bit of a hold over the film Failsafe. And I'm skipping around here a little bit, but Mark and I did did allude to this uh, on the uh, Failsafe show. That Columbia said, okay, here's the deal. And Columbia, with big prodding by Stanley Kubrick, who was really fearful about these two films coming out very close to one another. The deal was that Failsafe, you know, would not be held accountable for anything by them. But they were going to release Dr. Strangelove first. And probably that led to Failsafe not doing as well in the box office. It was released eight months after Dr. Strangelove was released in June of 1964. And it, and it hurt a little bit because a lot of people who had seen Dr. Strangelove and then Failsafe comes out several months later. And they're almost expecting the same kind of movie. Instead of a straight out drama you know, like, they, uh, like they got. so. So Columbia is financing the film, but they had one condition that they gave Kubrick. They would agree to finance the film in its entirety if Peter Sellers played at least four major roles. Because Columbia Pictures loved the film Lolita, which was uh, shot two years and released two years earlier, and Peter Sellers' performance in that, where he assumes seven different identities, his character... It has multiple personalities and he assumes seven different characters. They loved that so much. In addition to a movie that Peter Sellers played in 1959 called The Mouse That Roared. I love that film. Funny comedy. He played three roles in that movie. And so Columbia says, no, if you, we're going to finance the film, but we want Peter Sellers in multiple roles. At least four. And so initially... Peter Sellers was going to end up playing the President of the United States, President Merton Muffley. He's also going to play Group Captain Mandrake, who is a part of an exchange program between the UK and the United States, as serving as General Jack D. Ripper's aide. He would also serve, uh, Peter Sellers would also play the character of Dr. Strangelove who was a former German Nazi scientist who was a science advisor and weapons advisor to the United States. We'll talk a lot about that character in a minute. (laughs) And he was also supposed to play the character of Major Kong, which we just told you that Slim Pickens played in the movie. But he had some reservations about that character. He didn't have any problems with the other three, playing Mandrake or Muffley or Strangelove. But he was having some issues with the Texas draw. And he took home uh, some material that Columbia had given him. Got a little bit of coaching on the, uh, how to do the accent. And he just didn't like what he did with it. And he shot basically a little screen test for Columbia to show him. Said, look, see, this isn't that good. And they agreed. And so they said, okay, just do the three. And they brought in Slim Pickens to play Major Kong. Now, interesting, so just a fun little story. Because again, Slim Pickens was not well known when this movie was shot. So the new Major Kong shows up on the set. You know, you got James Earl Jones there and the other people that were playing the uh, crewmen of the B-52. All young actors. A lot of people made their debuts in this film. And they see this guy, Slim Pickens, you know, walking around with his, his, his folksy Texas drawl. Uh, I can't do Slim Pickens as well as uh, Clay Sayer does. Should have had Clay sit in on this show. And they were marveling at the fact. They said, this guy is incredible. He takes the character home with him. It's amazing. And then somebody says, no, he really is like that. That's how he is. So have you ever seen Slim Pickens in any movie? He's like that all the time. Or he was like that all the time during his life. (laughs) So in a lot of films, he always sort of played himself. But let's talk about these characters that Peter Sellers plays. Group captain Lionel Mandrake. He was the easiest of the three for Sellers to play because Sellers, who actually served in the RAF during World War II, apparently had a a reputation for mimicking his superiors. He was sort of an impressionist. you know. The guys he served with really, really enjoyed that. And if you're a fan of Terry Thomas, who acted with Peter... In fact, I'm surprised he's not in this movie. Uh, But if you're a fan of Terry Thomas, then you'll see that sellers is relying a lot on how terry thomas probably would have approached this role so he used his buddy's you know technique a little bit on this one and he you know he's he, he stayed he's stiff he's buying the book you know this is part of an exchange program between the the RAF and the uh, United States Air Force and he want you know he doesn't want to embarrass his country or the RAF and his scenes with sterling hayden in this one when they find out when he finds out what's really going on, which we're gonna tell you about in just a minute, are legendary. Now as president, Merkin Muffley, Sellers decided to go a Midwestern approach. And Sellers said he drew his inspiration from Adlai Stevenson, who had run for president against Dwight D. Eisenhower, both in 1952 and 1956. And he was a UN ambassador for the Kennedy administration during the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis. And I didn't catch that as a kid. I, uh, I was just getting into politics in 1968. My grandfather was getting me into it pretty heavily. We would have a major, you know, a major election coming up a month after, this movie, after I saw this movie. And that's when I really got into it. I, I remember, I think, the first big political thing that my, my grandfather, my, my father's father, got me into because he was a big politician. Uh, was the uh, uh, the the conventions, the Republican and the Democratic conventions of nineteen sixty eight? And if you if you are familiar with the history of it, or were alive back then, uh, the sixty eight Democratic convention in Chicago was pretty controversial, pretty pretty controversial. And of course, uh, you know, LBJ had also always, already made his announcement that he was not going to run again. So we were coming up on the election that featured Richard Nixon running against Hubert Humphrey. But I didn't know about Adlai Stevenson. I mean, I never heard any of his speeches, so I wasn't really sure. Now, originally, President Muffley was going to have a bad head cold, and he was going to play the, the role also very effeminately. And Hubert didn't like it. Not only did he, he didn't like it, but it also the, the crew kept cracking up so much about what Sellers was doing. He says, okay, we're going to make him a serious character. And they did has a slight effeminate touch to him. But Sellers basically plays it straight. And they left in a little bit about the bad head cold or whatever, but it's not really that apparent in the final cut of Dr. Strangelove. It's a nice trade-off to the next character we're going to talk about, and that is (laughs) Dr. Strangelove. Scientist, former Nazi. Again, if you're a historian of World War II, Operation Paperclip, which is uh, the U.S.'s uh, project to recruit top German scientists at the end of World War II. That's where we got Werner von Braun and a lot of other scientists that were involved in NASA with our own space program. And then the Russians got the ones they wanted and we were going head to head. Dr. Strangelove is the funniest character in this movie. He's definitely one of the funniest funniest characters we've ever seen. He's he's a combination of a man who served with the Rand Corporation, did a lot of studies for the United States. Herman Kahn, and it was Herman Kahn who promoted the policy of MAD that we talked about in Failsafe, the Mutual Assured Destruction policy, which is we still follow that to this day. Both sides, both of the major sides have nukes, they're not going to use them. Because they know it's a lost cause, and that will keep everybody safe. Now, it's always been rumored that Dr. Strangelove in this movie was based on uh, Henry Kissinger. But that I, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm taking the side of those that say, no, that's not true. Kissinger really is, is about a year away from coming to uh, prominence in the Nixon administration. In fact, it would would probably really be around 1970 before he really became well-known. With his work on uh, the Vietnam War, trying to come to an agreement, an armistice, or a settlement with with them, and setting up Nixon's trip to China. Dr. Strangelove is totally wacko. He's in a wheelchair, and his right hand has a mind of its own. Now, there is a condition called... Alien hand syndrome. Yeah, I kid you not. It's a syndrome where the where the you know, extremities, the the limbs, sort of act independently of what you're thinking, and so that's what they sort of suggest here. Except Doctor Strangelove's right hand tends <laughs> to like to do Nazi salutes. Uh, it tries to strangle Doctor Strangelove at one point, and the two are fighting with each other throughout this whole movie. It's absolutely hysterical when we first see this battle. And it's a lengthy scene between Dr. Strangelove and his right hand while he's talking to the president. See, Stanley Kubrick, when he started shooting this film, he shot it. He was shooting it like like failsafe. It's a straight drama. And he said in a later memoir that he saw the comedy that was coming through this. They weren't trying to be funny. But there was so much comedy he could see. He said, stop, hold the presses, and we're going to go in a different direction. And so they did. So Strangelove's character became more wacky. He's the most slapstick of the characters in here. But they're all funny. And he had everybody play everything straight, which is the thing you do in a comedy. The best comedies, if you already have that innate comedy coming out of the script, then all the people have to do is play it straight. And the comedy takes care of himself. So Slim Pickens' as Major Kong may seem like a very comic character, but really Slim Pickens is playing himself. But he's got some great, great lines in here. And I guess I've got to get a little bit into the storyline to make these uh, characters make any sense. What happens is, is that is that Jack D. Ripper, the commander of Burpleson Air Force Base, goes crazy. And he sends the whole bomber wing that's stationed there to attack Russia. Makes him believe that there's been a sneak attack on Washington. They have a wing attack called Plan R for that contingency. Because, God forbid, the United States suffer a sneak attack and the whole chain of command goes down. Plan R allowed for that, allowed them to have power over the nuclear weapons so they could fight back. Now, after Sellers turned down the roller or said, look, I, I can't do this role, it's not right for me, Kubrick actually approached Dan Blocker, who at the time was a very popular actor on Bonanza. And I got to admit, he would have been interesting to see him play that, but his agent rejected the script. He said it was too, quote-unquote, pinko, too communist. That's when Kubrick went to to Pickens. He had seen a Western film called One-Eyed Jacks, remember that, with Marlon Brando. And Slim had been in that, and he really liked him. And he said, yep, he can do this. So let's talk about... Real quickly, Jack D. Ripper, Sterling Hayden, was talked out of retirement. He'd been forced into retirement because of the the whole communist thing. That ruined a lot of careers. And I liked Sterling Hayden. I'd seen him in a lot of films. He had done a lot of work before this. He'd been gone for five years. And Kubrick finally talked him into coming out of retirement to do this. He wasn't sure, but he decided, okay. Now, the character of Jack D. Ripper... Has given in to a conspiracy, which is another reason I wanted to bring this one out now because we've been going through so many of these conspiracies contemporary time now. See, cons- conspiracy theories are not just nowadays; they've been around for a long, long time. And there was a conspiracy theory that came out from the John Birch Society, a very ultra right wing society in the sixties, that a lot of people gave into. I mean, that you know followed almost like a cult, like a political cult. Of course, we we can't relate to anything like that nowadays. I'm sorry. I don't want to get into politics here. But they had a theory that the communists in Russia were basically poisoning us through fluoridation. And a lot of people really believe this. You know, putting fluoride in the water, which was done to help your teeth and all that, was destroying us. And Jack D. Ripper explains to... Lionel Mandrake, group captain Lionel Mandrake, that the reason he's launching this attack is because of this secret attack that the communists are making against Americans using fluoridation. And he discovered that fluoridation was hurting us during the act of making love (laughs) and realized that our precious bodily fluids, that's exactly how he puts it, it's a running gag throughout this whole film. We're being destroyed by fluoridation. So Ripper launches the bomber wing using Plan R so that all of the guys in the bomber wing think there's been a sneak attack on Washington and they head for their, their primary targets. Now you've got General Buck Turgeson. Now, I, I was not that familiar with Curtis LeMay. He would later run as a vice presidential candidate for, you know, for uh, George Wallace when George Wallace ran as an independent candidate for president in 1968. And Wallace, who was, you know, running on a, you know, in a pretty you know, pretty white right-wing type of platform, picked Curtis LeMay because Curtis LeMay was a, uh, he was quite a guy. I mean, you know, he was, you know, I want to say, you know, if you thought George S. Patton, was a wild general, uh, Curtis Lemay was right up there, and then some. And uh, you know he was very, uh, you know he he was, he was he was he was very very conservative when he served as the, uh, the the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Now, George C. Scott wanted to play this a little reserved, but after Stanley Kubrick decided to go to the blank comedy, he had to figure a way to get George C. Scott to go overboard with the character. To make it work. And Scott didn't trust Stanley Kubrick. In fact, he didn't like Kubrick. Now this is coming from James Earl Jones. Talking about the making of Dr. Strangelove. And Scott wasn't comfortable doing it that way. That I mean, you know, he just didn't like that. So, Kubrick talked Scott into doing some over-the-top rehearsals. And he, and he filmed them. Unbeknownst to Scott. And Scott never knew that they were using those takes and not the more reserved takes that he would do after he did the the crazy ones. Now, one of the things that helped Kubrick deal with George C. Scott was Scott was a big chess player, and Kubrick was an excellent chess player. And they played the, played the game constantly on the set during setups and, and downtime. And uh, Kubrick beat Scott just about every time they played. So Scott you know, respected him for his, his chess prowess. But he was horrified when he saw the finished cut and that they had used those overacting and, and crazy takes, which make the movie, folks. It is one of the funniest performances I've ever seen in a film. You know, I mean, Dr. Strangelove it was out of sight there, but to see George C. Scott do the, what he does in this film is just hilarious. And later on, Scott came around and said, "You know, that was sort of fun." But for a while there, he swore he would never work with uh, Stanley Kubrick again. So you got this—you got this black comedy going. Now they shot this on a relatively small budget. It surprised me how little the budget was. But again, I, I got thinking: Well, you know, a lot of the actors were young actors. One point eight million. Dollars was the budget for this and a lot of that went to sellers so they had to be very very creative they brought in Sir Ken Adam name we've talked about quite a bit as our set designer brilliant set designer did all the James Bond sets those are you know the early 60s James Bond sets incredible music by Laurie Johnson was not overpowering just enough to sort of set off the comedy. I really liked the way it it worked with the film. Laurie short for Lawrence, in case you're wondering. He was an English composer, wrote for a lot of of British films and television series, one of the most highly regarded arrangers of the Big Bang swing and pop music uh, uh, time in England. And again, it, it works so well here. Cinematography by Gilbert Taylor, who collaborated on A Hard Day's Night, Repulsion, The Omen, and Star Wars. Just some of the things he did in his career. Great look for this. But the Ken Adams sets just really do this. I mean, this film, oh my goodness. Because they have the war room. A lot of this, you know, with, with Turgison and Muffley and, and Peter Bull's character um, as the, the the Russian ambassador, take place in the big war room. With the big board and it shows you know, where all the planes are going and all that. We've seen this in countless movies that dealt with this subject, like War Games and, and, uh, well, and Failsafe too. Ken Adam does a a terrific job on this, but he had a real challenge ahead of him when it came to the B-52s. Now, in 1964, I should say 63 as well, because I shot a lot of this in 63, this was state-of-the-art stuff. The B-52 was the ultimate bomber. In the United States Air Force, they had a lot of things that you know nobody else had. So the Air Force wasn't very cooperative on this one. They they, they couldn't let them just go inside a B-52 and film. But somehow, Stanley Kubrick needed a a set for the interior of a B-52, the cockpit, and and where the you know where James Earl Jones, as the bombardier, was, and some of the other guys. They had a picture, and Ken Adam used a photograph. And put together the sets that would, they, would, they would have the cockpit set. And then another, another part of the, the, the interior of the B-52 showing where the other guys were, where the bombardier station was. Uh, the radio station, which had the uh, scrambler that uh, gets damaged in, in the movie so that they can't contact that B-52 and call it back like they do the others. And then the, the, Bombay, the Bombay Doors, the Bombay area where the actual bombs were located. Ken Ad, it's some of the best work I've seen Ken Adam do. Amazing. And later on, Air Force veterans who watched the movie said, he was dead on with the way he, he represented the interior of the B-52 for not being able to see one inside, but just from this photograph. He was dead on. And the photograph wasn't of the interior. It was just, you know, from the outside. Dead on with what he made. So, real tribute to Ken Adam. I don't believe that they won any awards from the Academy for the art design. It was nominated for several. Kubrick was nominated for uh, Best Director. It was it re- received a Best Picture nomination. Of course, Best Actor, Peter Sellers. Best Adapted Screenplay, Kubrick, Peter George, and Terry Southern all got nominated. Best Film from Any Source, it did win that one. It did win Best Film for, in the British Awards, but not the Academy Awards. But won quite a few. You know, Hugo Awards, Writers Guild of America, New York Film Critic. They they uh, gave uh, Stanley Kubrick the Best Director Award. Silver Ribbon Award also was Kubrick Best Director, so it got a lot of awards, just not just that one in the Academy Awards. Some of the scenes that stood out to me, this is where I'm going to spoil some of it. Again, the big conversation between Lionel Mandrake and Jack D. Ripper. And, of course, he locks down the Air Force Base. And, you know, when Turgeson and the Joint Chiefs find out what's going on, and the president finds out what's going on, that we've got a bomber wing headed to Russia. What do you do? They can't get in touch with them because they're using plan R, they need a code, a special code that will uh, work with the Descrambler so they know that it's not the enemy trying to send them fake signals or whatever. And so that's when the ambassador shows up. And of course, that drives and crazy because you're letting him into the big he's gonna see the big board and everything. My God. He sees everything. He's a rusky. They have a little scuffle where uh, the ambassador accuses Turgesson of trying to plant a camera on him, and he's got a little spy camera, one of those little spy cameras you can hold in your hand. Some great lines in this, like the president saying, gentlemen, this is the war room. There's no fighting in the war room. <laughs> and originally, there's a big spread of food there for the, uh, for the Joint Chiefs and everybody, and originally, the original ending for this film was going to end up in a big pie fight. And they changed that because, again, this was being shot in 1963. There was a little incident that happened on November 22nd of 1963. Yeah, the day before my birthday. Made for a wild ninth birthday. It was the assassination of John F. Kennedy. And one of the lines in the pie fight at the end that has, you know, everybody, you know, Turgisson and the ambassador and all, everybody throwing food at each other, is that, uh, President Muffley gets hit in the face with a pie and turns and said, Gentlemen, our president has fallen. When the powers that be at Columbia saw that, they said, No, we can't do that. No, absolutely not. The president has just been killed. And we're not going to put that in our movie. And Kubrick sort of said, Yeah, you're right. That's too much. It's too soon. Too soon. Because that, was such a traumatic effect, that was one of the most impacting event of my life now I've talked about this a few times, and those of us who were kids when that happened, I think that probably impacted us more than anything in our life. was the assassination of j f k so that so they changed the ending. I'll tell you about that in a few seconds here. so you've got that storyline going on. you've got the interior of the cabin of the b fifty two slim pickens almost steals it all. <laughs> You know, giving, them, giving the, the, the crew his pep talks and all that stuff. You know, a lot of the crew says, you know, maybe this is a mistake. Maybe it's not true. But they were getting confirmation that, yep, no, this is, you know, plan R. It must mean, you know, and he said, well, they must have really whacked us, you know, in Washington and all that. We've got a job to do and we got to do it. Well, back in the war room, they decided the only way they can get out of this without starting World War III is to tell the Russians what's going on. So the ambassador gets them in touch with the uh, the Russian proletariat. And he's talking to the prime minister, or their version of the prime minister, I should say. They said we're going to tell you how to shoot down our planes if we can't get in touch with them if we can't find out. Which turgeson just goes nuts over that. But while this is all going on, you've got the army, the army rangers trying to take control of Burpleson Air Force Base. Of course, Turgensen says, "Hey, it's going to be it's going to be defended," and the. Uh, Army guys to say we'll, we'll we'll flick it aside we'll we'll get in there that's no problem and they do but you got a couple of great scenes with with Sterling Hayden and Peter Sellers and Sellers is trying to make sense out of all of this and to not go into a whole lot of detail I mean you've got you've got uh, Jack D. Ripper with a thirty caliber machine gun of the full thing shooting it out the window at the soldiers trying to take over the Air Force base. And Mandrake just can't believe what's going on. And then finally, when Ripper realizes he's going to lose, he goes into the bathroom and kills himself. And that's when Keenan Wynn shows up. And you've got uh, you've got Lionel trying to explain what's going on. And, of course, Keenan Wynn hasn't been told anything except they just need to take over this, this uh, Air Force base, our Colonel Bat-Guano. <laughs> and, uh, you know, Old Bat, he thinks that a bunch of preverts, as he calls them, has taken over the base. And that he thinks Lionel's probably one of the head of the preverts. <laughs> they go round and round and round as Mandrick saying, Look, I have got to talk to the President of the United States. I've got to. But their phones are all screwed up at the base. But he finds a pay phone. But he doesn't have enough change to make the call. So he goes to Colonel Batguano. He says, there's a Coca-Cola machine over there. Shoot the lock off of it and get me the change from it so I can call the President of the United States. And through some some great give and take back and forth between the two, Guano finally says, yeah, okay, I'll do it. But you're going to have to answer to the Coca-Cola company for this. And Sellers is able to get through because he has figured out from some little scribblings of uh, General Ripper, what the three-letter code is. It's a combination of three different letters. So now they don't have to go through every combination in the alphabet, which, uh, as they said earlier in the film, would have taken weeks. The general was obsessed with uh, with the expression purity of essence and also peace on earth. So you got POE twice, and they figured it's either POE or OPE or EPO or one of those, and it turns out it's OPE. And they're able to get almost all of the planes back. But the Russians have tried to knock down the planes because they didn't have any time to waste. They didn't know if they were going to find the code. The Americans didn't know if they were going to find the code in time. So they just had to start shooting the planes down. And they ended up shooting down four of them. Or they thought they shot down four, but one of them survived, and that's Slim Pickens's B fifty two. But their radio and communications got wiped out in the attack, so they still don't know. They're this is not supposed to be happening, and they're heading to their their target. And to make matters worse, the attack causes them to get a fuel leak, so they have to go to not the first priority target. Or the second, they've got to find a target of opportunity, just anywhere they can drop their bomb of military at a place of military importance. So now the war room, thinking they know where they're going, and Muffley's telling the, you know, the, the prime minister, just throw everything you got up in these areas and take them down because we can't get in touch with them. They really don't know where they're going to be. And to make the whole thing complicated even further, the ambassador lets them know that they have come up with this weapon called the Doomsday Weapon, which Turgenson doesn't believe. But the weapon supposedly is a series of hydrogen bombs all connected together by a computer. And when the computer senses that Russia is being attacked, it sets them all off and the, the commonality of all of those going off at the same time will destroy the world. And of course... Dr. Strangel says, that's fine. Why didn't you tell anybody about it? Because it's no good if nobody knows it exists. And according to the ambassador, they were going to make the announcement the following Monday. They had it all planned. But General Ripper sort of beat him to the punch. So they got to deal with that. Well, Kong gets through and he drops his bombs in an iconic scene. Because the Bombay doors were damaged and they can't get the doors to open up. So he says, I'm going down there. I'm going down there. I'm not going to, you know, we we haven't come this far without this happening. And it leads to one of the most memorable scenes ever in motion picture history. Where he's sitting on this hydrogen bomb working on the wiring of the Bombay doors. And he finally gets it to work and the Bombay doors open and the bomb drops. And we see Major Kong riding the bomb down. Like he'd be riding a bucking bronco. And I'm sure if you haven't seen the movie, you have seen that clip. It's a classic clip. And he rides it all the way down and it blows up. But the world doesn't doesn't come to an end yet. Because there's been this discussion going on in the war room with Dr. Strangelove who says, you know, I, I think I've got a solution here. Well, he's fighting his hand and everything. we can We can set up. Key people in the mine shafts of this country, you know, get as deep as we can in the mine shafts. Start our civilization there. Of course, he mentions that you know it'd probably be uh, ten women to one man, so they could repopulate quicker. Which Turgis and all of a sudden says, "Hey, I sort of like that," and so does the ambassador. He says, "Yeah, I like that too. That's a good idea." And they go round and round and round, and in all this time, now this is this is a joke or a, a reference that if you weren't alive back then, you may not understand. But basically you had the United States and the Russia that were going toe-to-toe in the Cold War. We both had nuclear weapons. We were both trying to come up with an edge against the other. And when one would discover something, you know, the other would say, oh, we can't have a gap there. we got to have one too. And so that is played out throughout this movie. You know, we can't have a gap. You know, we can't have a gap. can't have a gap. They get talking about the uh, living in these mines and all that. And then Turgeson comes out and says, you know what we need to do? You know, we're going to be staying down there for about 100 years. We need to take some of our bombs down there with us so we can come out with bombs so we don't have a mine shaft gap. And the ambassador's heard enough. And he's got a little gizmo with him. And he goes off by himself while they're all fighting and, and discussing it. And uh, Dr. is going crazy. I won't tell you about that. you got to watch that. I can't describe it enough to to give it justice. And the ambassador triggers the, he has the trigger for the doomsday bomb. And the film ends with all these hydrogen, you know, pictures of hydrogen bombs going off. To the song, we'll meet again. (laughs) Don't know where, don't know when. And it's a much better ending than I think the, uh, the food fight would have been. It's even crazier than what I've told you here, folks. I've told you a lot, a lot more than I normally do for these movies. I put this movie in my top 20 of all time, of favorites of mine. Maybe it slips into the top 10. It's tough because I have new ones that have sort of jumped position. But as a kid, I walked away from this. 13 years old, I'm 13 years old, about ready. I'm a month from turning 14. I'd never seen a movie like this in my life. And it made quite an impact on me. And over the years, it just kept getting better and better and better. And I learned to love black comedies. I think it's one of Kubrick's very best. There's a lot of people that don't like this movie. A lot. But I'm a huge fan of this film. So if you haven't seen Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb, it's very easy to find. If you're a, a subscriber to Max, they have it in their library, so your your membership to Max, uh, you know, it, it, you don't have to pay any extra fees. But it's around. I mean, I had it on VHS, I had it on DVD, never did get it on Blu-ray. Probably should should add that as I'm rebuilding my collection now. And I pull it out every now and then and watch it, and I just have more fun with it, as much fun as I had when I first saw it as a 13-year-old kid, Doctor Strangelove. Check it out, folks. It is quite a movie. Definitely one in a million. Hey, folks, we'll be back with you again next week. We are a show away from episode number 400, which, as I've been teasing you, is going to be a very, very special show. We're going to visit an old friend next week, a movie that's coming up on a big anniversary and one that still sustains itself after all these decades. Hmm, that could be a number of different films, couldn't it? Well, we'll let you know about it next Monday. Have a great week, folks. And we'll see you for episode number 399 next Monday. Have a good one. It's a new era for Doctor Who. Life depends on change and renewal. And the crew from Earth Station Who podcast will continue to guide you through the past, present, and future of the franchise. Though not necessarily in that order. Join us for some wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey talk of stories new and old. Listen to Earth Station Who wherever you access your podcasts. We're a proud member of the ESO Network. We're all stories in the end.